This episode is brought to you by Okendo. Over 5,000 of Shopify's fastest growing retailers trust Okendo to capture high impact reviews, showcase customer experiences, and drive conversions. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 120 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Sophie Kahn, the co-founder and CEO of Orate. Orate is the premier direct-to-consumer fine jewelry brand offering ethically sourced luxury jewels without the retail markup. Founded in 2015, the company seeks to democratize the fine jewelry industry through its online-driven model, accessible price points, and social impact strategy. In this episode, Sophie shares with us her journey from growing up in Amsterdam with dreams of moving to New York City, to working at Boston Consulting Group, to working at luxury fashion house Marc Jacobs, to having brunch with a friend in Nolita, which led to the idea for Orate. We talk about why she believes you can learn anything with the right framework, the differences between lab-grown and natural jewelry, and how she validated the concept for Orate with a pop-up store on Spring Street in New York. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, follow us on Spotify, or leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Sophie. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. Good. Thanks so much for joining the show. I'm excited to hear your story in building Orate. Thanks for having me. Where are you calling from? From New York. Awesome. Yeah. I love New York. Lived there for many years. And where are you from originally? So I'm originally from Amsterdam, but I always really loved New York. I remember I was 18 and walking on, I think it was at the time, yeah, it was Fifth Avenue. And I just got that like I you know, was it called the iPod or, you know, the one that was spinning? Yeah. Bought it at the Apple store and I was like, I'm going to find a way to come back to New York. This is my city. I'm going to have to move here. So on the plane back, I basically made like a little list of how to end up in New York with like my to-do list. Uh, how old were you? 18. Okay, nice. Yeah, yeah. So kind of like get high grades, get into this program at NYU, which had kind of an exchange program with my university in Amsterdam, do certain extracurriculars, whatever. I had my like little list and that's what I stuck to, to make sure I could come back one day. And how did you get to New York in the first place? Was that like a field trip or a vacation family? Yeah, that was, that was exactly. That was like when I was 18, just a vacation. Nice. Dutch people travel a lot. I think I went on a field trip in like seventh grade or something to New York. Oh yeah. And we yeah. went to the top of the Empire State Building. I was like, this is my town. I'm definitely moving here. The energy um, is so good. Yeah, there is really a serious energy there that you can't really explain until you get there and go. I agree. So Amsterdam is cool. I went there once. My husband, he worked for a company actually that was based there called Oppo oh, really? Suits. Have you heard of Oppo Suits? Uh, no, I haven't. They're, I think they're like in a smaller village outside of the city. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about Amsterdam, which is beautiful, there's so many bikers. There's a really big bike culture there. 100%. I mean- not just in Amsterdam, in Holland. Yeah. And I, you know, it's really healthy. I mean, obesity rates are really low in Holland because of it. Uh, everybody bikes. I biked from, you know, 12 to 18. So my kind of middle school, high school, I biked one and a half hours a day, like 45 minutes to school and 45 minutes back through rain, through snow. Right. Even That's like, what I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> you guys bike <laughs> through all weather conditions. You get used to it. You know, all the kids have kind of this, you know, kind of raincoat slash rain pants in their bag. And then as soon as it rains, you wear that. And then sometimes, sometimes if it was really cold, my mom would bring me or 
somebody would bring us. And then at some point we got like scooters or mopeds or whatever. But what is really cold if everyone's just biking through the snow anyways? Like what does cold even mean at well, that point? Cold, cold would be, you know, freezing more than, you know, Holland doesn't get that cold. So cold would be, you know, in Celsius would be like minus five. I'm in LA and you just said Amsterdam, they don't get that cold. And I'm like, it, it snows. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so it's it's actually a very healthy part of the culture. And also just in Amsterdam, there's no other way. If everybody was taking a car, forget it. Game over. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, no, there's more bikers than there are cars yeah. on the road. Yeah, yeah. It's really amazing. And they have like their kids on the back. I mean, it was it's crazy to see how many bikes there are. It's 100%. definitely great for the environment. I think no, it's my awesome. friends, my friends who are moms, they'll have, you know, they'll have, we call it a buck feet. So it's just like a bike and then like a kind of a, thing in the front where your kids can sit in and they'll have like three or four kids in this little kind of cart on the front and sometimes they'll have one kid on the back one on the front carrying a third carrying them on them while they're riding the bike yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's um it makes the women tough i think like that's for sure them. as if you know they need it more tough right you know we just got to take it up that next notch <laughs> next to really notch. prove ourselves <laughs> Of course, always, right? <laughs> Seriously. So you grew up in Amsterdam. And what was it like as a kid? What kind of kid were you? What were you into? And did you have siblings? Yes. So I had siblings, the oldest of four. And I was a real tomboy until until I turned 12, 13, basically, until I got hormones. <laughs> I was a real tomboy. I actually wanted to be a boy at some point was very much into kind of, you know, I would shave like my dad, not really, of course, but you know, I would, I was just, yeah, I was really like loved sports, loved climbing trees, basically not at all into fashion, which of course now I am, which is really interesting. And then always liked kind of business as well, would always sell trinkets to whoever would come down the door, uh, through the door. And of course, at some point my parents told me to stop because it was embarrassing. They would have friends over and I'd be selling something to them that they didn't need, you know, <laughs> they would have to buy out of, just to be polite. And I loved school. I was definitely um, like an insecure overachiever. I like how you added insecure before that. What do you mean by insecure overachiever? Basically always thought I wouldn't, you know, I, I remember even when I was like 12, I had to have a talk with the school principal at the time because when we would have like little exams, I would always think I didn't do well. And then I would have like a perfect score. Right. And he just thought that was so odd, that gap that I couldn't kind of trust myself. I mean, that came, that became better with time, but I definitely had that. And so you did super well, but every time you would take a test and get like an A plus before you got your grade back, you were wondering or thinking that you didn't do as yes. well as you actually did. So the connection exactly. between your performance and actually like the reality mm -hmm. of you, yep actually knowing that you got those things right. It wasn't really like connecting. Interesting. Where do you think that came, comes from? Or like it's came genetic. from back in the day? I, I, I think it's genetic. I mean, who knows? My dad's parents are like that. Mm, my dad is a bit. Yeah. I mean, my dad's a psychiatrist. My mom's a psychologist. So they definitely tried to, you know, help me through it, so to speak. And I think, I think my whole family is a little bit like that. I think it's a perfectionist. Yeah. It's perfectionist. Exactly. And of course, you know, at some point you need to kind of, with time, I definitely, I don't feel that anymore, but for me, it was the type of thing that I, I had to build confidence by proving myself in a way and getting some external validation that I could do it. And then after a while, I didn't feel that anymore, but definitely well, I, it, for sure it was like that. And, and it got better with time. And I think by the time, you know, and then puberty hits and then you're, you know, interested in other things and you don't care as much about only getting A's anyway. It's interesting that you grew up in a family of psychology, basically, like a two parents that drunk a lot <laughs> from birth. What? No, I was saying like we got like analyzed a lot, but like analyzed you know. a lot. Yeah. What I was gonna say, like, what do you think with that being such a unique thing? What do you like? Did you learn something about yourself that you probably wouldn't have learned if you didn't have parents in that field? Or like what do you mean by being analyzed? Like I think my parents were really thoughtful about how they educated us and, and raised us. And the main thing they did is kind of give us the freedom to form our own path and not have us live vicariously through them. You know, like a lot of parents have, which is natural, have kind of your goals for your child and you kind of want to 
you know, you have a path kind of set out for them. And I think they were really careful not to do that. And even if they did have certain opinions or, or, or on what we should do, they never said it. So it was very kind of behind the scenes. So they did it in a very smart slash potentially sneaky way where we felt in control. And I think that was smart because we never rebelled any of us because of that. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know what I would be doing if I didn't rebel so hard. Like my mom didn't go to college. So there's a lot of pressure for me to finish college and I still dropped out. So totally disappointing for her. (laughs) But I'm just wondering, like, "Hmm, I wonder if I didn't know, like what would have happened? I still would have dropped out. (laughs) Maybe not. You don't know. Maybe it would have been like, I'm actually going to prove to you that I can, but because you want to, you know, who knows? It's true, right? Things get in your head. Well, I had my situation was a little different. I had a situation or opportunity that I don't think I I didn't want to pass up. But then that kind of even goes back a step further. So who knows if I would have even had a day of college if that wasn't yeah her wish. And it depends on the kid too, right? But and on what type of child you have. But I think that's the main thing is that they really looked at us, analyzed us, were very thoughtful, and not kind of just going off the cuff and doing whatever. I think that's right. So what was your dream? What did you want to be when you grew up? I really, it changed throughout the time. So, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a doctor and then, uh, but I think eventually I wanted to do something. I really liked fashion. So I was almost going to go to, you know, kind of like a fashion school in Amsterdam. And I actually think this is where my parents' influence behind the scene already started. I was also good in math and numbers. And I think they thought that was a safer path. But instead of telling me like, there's no way you're going to go to this, you know, design fashion school, they had me speak with a couple of people that were, you know, through connections, whatever, that were high up kind of in the world of fashion, right? I spoke to a couple of CEOs and they all advised me, not, not because my parents told them to, but they had all advised me to study something like economics or finance, right? So this is kind of, how already the dots started aligning. So that's what I did. So even though I wanted to eventually work in kind of more of a creative fashion world, I also liked the business part of it. So I didn't have like a specific idea of this is what I want to do, but I did know the field. And I think that's also how my brain works. I really like the creative part, but I also like the analytical part. But to get there, I guess that's what I found out when I was 18, I should start with the analytical part. So that's what I did. I studied basically kind of a quantitative economics in Holland. And then I did my master's in finance uh, in the U.S. That's kind of how I, I how I started here. Yeah. And so you went straight from your bachelor's to exactly getting your master's. And so, well, that's not that close to New York City, though. It's not, but it was you know it was a really good program. That so you um, just lived on campus. You were in New Jersey, right at Princeton. Yep. I, and, but I did on the weekends come to New York. So I still oh, had, you know, you did some weekend trips. I see. hundred percent. It's like a, you know, two hour train ride. It's not that bad. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely spend my weekends in New York and that program was, you know, really extremely quantitative, you know, essentially like very good for your brain cells, call it, right? Because you're, you're kind of doing a ton of math and learning things that you never did. And for me, it was more just kind of challenging myself because I was with a lot of students that studied physics or like hardcore math. So I was definitely kind of, I'm, the first day there, I, I, I cried because I was like, there's no way I can do this. This is where this insecure part came back. And this math boot camp, and they were showing these crazy formulas and I was sitting next to somebody and I said, wow, this is insane. Like, what is this? And he was like, what are you talking about? They had this five years ago. And that's when I was okay, forget it. How am I ever going to do this? Um, so it was kind of a confidence booster builder that I, that I, that I was able to learn all of that without the background, so to speak. And then from there, you know, most basically everybody went to wall street, but again, given what I was interested in, it was never really about finance for finance. So I went to, I studied, um, or studied, I went to BCG doing management consulting, which is, you know, the business, essentially it's, you know, business. And then within there, I started focusing already on like luxury and fashion and consumer, which is what I gravitate towards. So BCG stands for Boston Consulting Group. Correct. But it doesn't mean it's in Boston. It's now across the world. Yeah. Right. So you were in New York, you got that job that you wanted in the city or finally full-time. Exactly. In the middle of a recession, by the way. So it wasn't, it wasn't easy because, you know, Princeton 2008 
2010. So you, you know what was happening then. It was a really interesting time to study finance, by the way. It was. The entire world was kind of falling apart. I mean, we had Lehman come to talk to us about potential jobs. And then two days later, they were gone. I was oh like, wow. God. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was an exciting time for the world. So, and, and yeah, that, one of the advantages actually that we were in a crisis was that it was easier to get a visa for me because, you know, there's always a quota for international students. There are not that many visas available, but that year, because there were, you know, there were so few jobs, um, everybody who wanted a visa got a visa. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize there was a quota for international students. So at that company specifically? No, no, in the in the U.S. So an H-1B visa has like a certain amount that the U.S. government gives out every year. And there's like a lottery system. So even if you get a job and they offer to pay for your visa, doesn't mean you get it because too many people want it, you know? Interesting. So luck played out a little bit here with the visa situation. So you were able to get that covered. And so you said you were kind of focused on consumer and what were some of the insights that you had and some things that you learned from your experience at BCG? I mean, it was one of the best learnings of my life. I think I would recommend it to anybody if you're interested in honestly in anything, because just the way you think you're with amazingly smart people, it's kind of just a structured mindset of, which I guess is also helpful if you're insecure in a way is that you learn that you can learn anything with a certain framework in a couple of weeks. So that's what's interesting. You could be doing kitchen cabinets for one project, and then you're working on shoes for another project, then you're working on energy. So it, and it kind of, that's the interesting part. It shows that if you think of it in a certain analytical way with certain frameworks and asking the right questions, you can become comfortable with anything and help with anything. Which is really cool because you it, obviously that that in and of itself is a confidence booster. And in, instead of thinking I need to know everything about this industry and have have worked in it for years to understand what's actually going on. So you were at BCG. You learned about frameworks and realizing and kind of actually helping with your insecurity a little bit of okay now if I have a framework around something I know I can achieve it. It's a lot easier and that you can learn anything. And then you moved over to Mark Jacobs. What made you switch over to want to work in fashion? Well, so I'm, I was always interested in it, right? So I really, right. it's always been in the back of my mind. And then I think after having done BCG for a couple of years, I felt comfortable with that. And then I really wanted to try the actual world of fashion and see what I thought. So, and I actually started with this interesting way to go, which is called an externship. So you kind of go through BCG to somebody else, to one of their potential clients or somebody they have a relationship with in a very safe way. And then if you like it, you stay. And if you don't like it, you go back to BCG. So it's a risk averse way of trying something new and did that. And I loved it. I mean, I felt really at home in the beginning. I was in a, you know, kind of more of a consultant's role, but then quickly I, I kind of joined a really interesting marketing team and I was, I became director of uh, first of marketing and then director of strategy working for first the president and then the CEO. So I got to see everything that they were doing from design to merchandising, to pricing, to wholesale, to retail, to branding, to PR. So an amazing learning uh, experience and, and really getting to see exactly how a company like that runs. Yeah. Did you get to meet Mark pretty often? Yeah, not often, but a couple of times. Yeah. He like He's smoked in the office genius. a lot. I don't know if he had quit smoking by then. I don't know if he has now, but I remember being I don't remember office. him smoking. I wouldn't have minded though, but no, I don't remember him. Did you smoke at the, at the time as well? I think definitely once in a while. Yes. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I remember I actually used to model and I was a sample size foot. So literally I would go in and do foot. I guess not, not like foot modeling, but it was uh, the, when they size the shoes to your feet as the yeah, sample. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. so funny. So they would literally size their entire foot collection to my foot. <laughs> size wow. And you were, and you were puffing while they were doing it. <laughs> he was puffing away cigarettes while they were working on the shoes on my feet. Yeah, it was bizarre. And I was like, I don't know how this is legal. This is like, we're not allowed to smoke on planes, but I guess you can smoke in your own office and no one can say anything. So I'm sure that was a wild, fun time working at one of the best, if not the best luxury houses in New York City at the time. 
you were there for three years. Did you get to go to one of his shows? Yeah, yeah. I went to all the shows. It was amazing. Great. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a really great time. I learned a lot. The people were amazing. But I guess I'm also somebody that gets, I'm not saying I get bored quickly, but at some point I was like, this is great. But, you know, I also like to kind of, I wanted to, I mean, run things in a way, right? So I think that was part of it. It's, it's still corporate at the end of the day. And it was going too slow for my liking. I have a ton of energy and I wanted to do more. That's kind of how the idea for Orid come up came up one day. And then I decided to just start it on the side because I had time left. Honestly. How did you get the idea? Where did it come from? So my one of my close friends from Princeton and, and now co-founder at, at Orid, we were having brunch in Nolita. I'm sure if you know New York Cafe Gitan, it's like- Of course. Oh my gosh. Delicious. Avocado toast is so good. Exactly. That's like so a classic. Good. So good. Watermelon New juice, spot. exactly. Yeah. Um, so we were having brunch one day, you know, pre-motherhood all the time in the world. And I had this really cool ring from um, an expensive brand that I got at a discount or whatever. It was an expensive brand, expensive ring. And my finger was completely green from this ring. And I had just gotten it like a week before. And we were taught, and this is kind of what sparked the conversation of like, wow, it's crazy. We're in our like late twenties, we have good salaries and we can't even really afford real gold. And if we can afford it, right? Think about the Fifth Avenue brands, you know, you're overpaying for what you're getting. It's just insane, the quality there. So the price quality ratio is completely off. There's no sustainability background. You have absolutely no idea. Anything behind the scenes is essentially hidden. And the designs for the real gold pieces are really safe. And kind of the cool designs that I liked were, you know, clearly not of good quality. So the product was kind of broken in that sense. And on the brand side, we were talking about it. Nobody was talking to us. All the advertising was really towards men buying for women versus us buying for ourselves. So it didn't feel empowering. Kind of the third pillar was that we saw a lot of D2C coming up, right? Warby Parker was growing, there was Tom Shoes. We're like, hey, maybe we can try something like this in fine jewelry, or is that crazy, right? So we started, you know, let's just give it a shot. So we took a class at Parsons in jewelry design and started learning about the industry and about marketing jewelry and designing jewelry. Were you guys in the same class together? Yes. It was like a weekend class at Parsons. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it just, the more we kind of looked into it, the more interesting it became. So we started our first little capsule collection and it did really well. And we spoke to a lot of our friends that were target customers and then their friends. And we, you know, had meetings with them and everybody was like, yeah, this is exactly what we need. So we started on the side. I immediately told my team at Mark Jacobs, I was like, I'm going to try this thing. They were all like, of course, whatever, that's fine. We support you. Go ahead. I don't think they thought it was going to be, you know, my new job. Right. <laughs> They're like, go have fun with that little hobby of yours. Exactly. Go, yeah, go explore, go explore. But yeah, so it started picking up and, and eventually I did, you know, for a full year or so I worked both. I did, you know, Mark Jacobs and Orate. And then eventually got to the stage where I had to, you know, basically, you know, quit working at Mark Jacobs and going full-time for Orate. And that's what we did. That was in 2016 for me. All right. But it sounds like you kind of started in 2015. And what were some of those, I guess, like metrics for success that kind of told you and your partner, this is something that you guys should really start committing to in a serious way? So one of the key moments that I remember was really, we had this little pop-up store in Soho on Spring Street. So we, you know, we were walking around and we wanted to test out the product in real life with customers and see how, how they would react to it. So there was this little store, I think it was a thousand a day. We got it for 10 days. It was like 10 grand, right? We had like 20 grand in our, in our bank account uh, for Orate. And we got some Ikea tables and just put on our, the samples and the jewelry we had. And we sold it within a couple of days, like sold everything, made like 40,000 in sales. I remember and I was like, wow, this really works. And what's cool is, you know, in contrast to online, even though you can get your data in a store, you see everybody, you hear everything, you see who's coming in. Right. So that's why I love retail. We'd just be sitting there sometimes in the corner, just listening. And you'd have, you know, these Everybody from like a mom with her daughter that's looking for like a gift between the two of them or like this cool girl from Paris dressed in Balmain that's like looking for a dainty piece of jewelry. Like there were all these different types of women that for different reasons gravitated towards Orate. So it was amazing. So that's when we really knew, okay, this is, this is real. Let's go. 
Amazing. And so what did let let's go mean? Like what were some of the first steps that you guys took to get the business off the ground? So then we raised some seed funding, right? So through connections and friends of friends and, and also people that we didn't know, but that we were put in touch with so that we had some funding to get started, you know, get a little office, hire a team, a couple team members, building out our retail presence. So we had a couple pop-ups. We had one in the Hamptons. We had one in Soho. We started opening one in Williamsburg. And then of course, scaling online in the beginning slowly. In retrospect, I wish we had done that sooner uh, because back in 2015 and 2016, it was so cheap. Um, <laughs> right. But you know, whatever. We, start, we started really scaling it in 2017 and, and, and kind of just going full throttle on, on, on all the cylinders in a way. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews, and they want to make it simple and easy for you to collect user-generated content to use for your Shopify site. Retailers that use Okendo have seen an 81% increase in conversion rate when customers interact with reviews and UGC on their site. With Okendo, you can showcase UGC and reviews on your e-commerce site to build trust with your customer base and compel buying action. Okendo works with some of Shopify's fastest growing brands like Skims, Carbon38, Byte, Magic Spoon, so many more. So if you'd like to join these high growth brands, head on over to go.okendo.io slash stairway to CEO to book a demo and take advantage of getting 30 days free on Okendo. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. What are some of the things that make Orate so unique? I, I love the lab-grown um, piece of it. Can you kind of speak more about how that came about and what that is? Yeah. So I think the lab-grown comes into what makes your Orate unique. I think what makes Orate unique is that we talk to our customer, often a woman, 90% of them are women buying for themselves. And we really say, what is it you want? And we listen to her. So she dictates and we deliver, not the other way around. So I think that on a very high level is what Orit is about. Where from the very beginning, we said, you know, it's it's not like I'm sitting in a field deciding what I'm inspired by that day and that's what we design. It's very much kind of, you know, 21st century focused on the woman at the core. We can talk to her because we're online, we're direct to consumer and we speak and listen to her and what she's looking for, right? So that's, high quality, but at a good price point, that's certain designs. And then now coming to the lab run, that's a perfect example. We were talking to her because we always do. And it's something that came up a lot, right? Where a lot of, and the interesting part is not all of them on lab grown. So there's very much, there's groups, there's people that mostly women again, that buy our product, women that really want natural. That's all they care about. And that's what they feel strongly about. And then there's a group that really wants lab. And instead of saying, you know, we as Orate, only want this, we said, you know, we're again, empowering the woman, let her decide. So we offer both. And because our woman is very educated and she can make up her own mind, we have the facts out there, right? So the pros and cons to each, and then whatever you feel like doing, you can do. And so can you kind of explain the differences between natural and lab grown? Of course. So natural, again, originally comes from the earth, right? Is mined from the earth. Ours, all of our diamonds that we do, of course, are sustainably sourced and we make sure there's no, you know, they don't come from conflict zones, et cetera. And they all follow the Kimberly process. So even our natural diamonds are sourced from the earth as ethically and sustainably as possible. That being said, they're still from the earth, right? So that's what natural means. And they also retain their value. So if you buy a natural diamond today, you can sell it whatever, in two years for a certain price, either higher or lower, depending on how the market is. The pros are that it retains its value. The con is still that it comes from the earth. Lab is kind of new and more modern, is created in a laboratory, right? And because of that, it's cheaper because, you know, it doesn't, you know, I guess the supply is just higher. It does not retain its value in the same way. So a lab-grown diamond is really hard to resell, which is a con. And then um, some people, and this is where the pros and cons come in, say, you know, it's better that it's not from the earth, but you're still using energy. This is the con. You're still using energy to create this lab-grown diamond, 
which also creates a lot of energy. So there are kind of two schools of thought and debates on both ends. And you really have people that want only one, right? A diamond takes thousands of years to create in a certain way. And some people love that aspect of a natural diamond and they don't feel the same kind of, you know, history or kind of, you know, value in, a, in something that's created in a laboratory, but other people don't care. And it looks the same. It's indistinguishable. And they just prefer, you know, cheaper price point and not coming from the earth. So there's, there's both, there's both sides. I was going to ask, how can you tell the difference if at all? I mean, obviously from a resale perspective, there must be some way to know the difference, but to someone who doesn't, you can't, you can't tell. Really? It's actually just the certificate. Otherwise you literally under a microscope can't tell the difference. Correct. Wow. I didn't realize that. No, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. So some people are saying that's why it's all going to go towards lab, but others absolutely don't think so. So it's, it's very interesting and it's a, you know, new development in, in the world of jewelry. That's crazy. So it's really the certificate. Well, can these certificates be faked though? That not really, because you have a couple of places that that make them and no. I mean, in the same way that theoretically you could buy like Louis Vuitton bag that also comes with certificate and it could be faked, but you know. Yeah, not really. we haven't seen it happen very often. No. no. Interesting. So you guys send the certificates with your stuff. If it's Correct. either one gets a certificate, it's just Correct. what does it say on there? Correct interesting that's awesome that it looks the exact same i thought for sure you'd say oh yeah under a microscope you can tell just a tiny little difference and like for me i i would you know if let's say i would suddenly buy like a diamond necklace i'd totally go for lab because i'd rather get something bigger for the same price you know it looks the same how much bigger are we talking a lab can be up to you know 30 to 40 percent cheaper so 30 to 40 percent bigger it's a lot wow yeah that's really big Interesting. But to each their own, right? There's like, yeah, we've really pulled our customer and talked to her a lot. And there's definitely two groups. Although I must say it's trending more towards lab. So we spoke to them two years ago, a year ago and now, and more and more people are open to the lab component. I mean, because how much energy are you really using? I mean, because you still have to fly the earth, you know, the earth natural ones over. There's so, there's still, in my opinion, I would Correct. assume, and I know nothing, but I would assume that the energy for the natural stones are yeah, exactly. way so. more than a lab. Yeah. Yeah. So like the argument depends. there is just weird. Correct. 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 And it, but it also depends what lab you're making them with, right? So, so certain lab grown diamonds potentially are made not from us, but are made in factories where you don't really know what's happening or how they're, you know, what they're putting into the, into the atmosphere. So there's that part as well. But your labs are based in the U S no, they're based in there. We have one in Mexico and one in Asia, but we have made sure that they're like completely certified, sustainable, et cetera. So we had to make sure that, but there's a lot of them now that are growing and coming up. So you need to, I think that's one of the things that you need to still really make sure of is to, I guess, check the details behind the factory that's building the lab-grown diamonds. I always wonder, like, are the people that are complaining about this energy, are they all driving electric cars too? You know, <laughs> are they not flying? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, I wonder always how far yeah. that goes, actually. Yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> So you guys have these, you know, this amazing product. What are some of the challenges that you faced along the way in building the business? So in the beginning, I would say the main challenge was just explaining, well, first of all, the financial network and people that invest in startups is, you know, 90% men. And we're, we have a product that's focused 90% on women. So kind of pitching the product to investors in and of itself is a challenge because they don't really, I mean, most of them don't wear jewelry. So we got a lot of, let me ask my wife, let me ask my daughters, which is why. Does that ever work? I feel like I've heard that a million times. They never really come back and say, oh, my wife thinks this is great. Let me invest. Like they don't actually, it doesn't actually work. It's hard. You really, this is why we really need more women in, you know, everywhere, but also in the investment world for sure. Um, so that's one, right? That was like in the beginning. And then there was the whole part of selling jewelry online that we always believed in, 
but a lot of people were like, don't you need to see it and feel it and touch it? And we were always like, no, it's, it's actually perfect for online because it's small. You don't need a lot of, you know, it's really easy to ship. There's not that much sizing. Okay, maybe for rings, but not for the rest. So it's like, it's a perfect product for online. But again, that was something that we really had to convince people of. And post-COVID, now everybody knows that. And then I think the, the, the third challenge, which we were talking about you and me earlier, was just COVID. I mean, my God, that was just so scary. I mean, in the end, it all worked out. But March 2020, I, I probably aged five years in that week or two weeks, whatever it was. You were pregnant so during COVID. And I think also fundraising at that time. I mean, that's a lot to do. It was a lot. I definitely that. And it was just scary because, you know, the world, obviously, who knew what was happening in the world? And then from, you know, for just focusing on Orate, I was like, oh, my God, who is going to buy jewelry in the middle of a pandemic? That's it. Like, what are we going to do? You know, that was like for two weeks. And then we suddenly realized, actually, people are getting checks from the government. There's a lot of spending. This is perfect. It was actually a great time for direct-to-consumer companies in retrospect. Uh, marketing was down, like marketing costs were down, like CPMs uh, were down. So it was actually easier to get people to find out about you and everybody was online and on their phone. So, but those first couple of weeks, yeah, we had to, you know, talk to the team. We had to pay people less. We had to get through it. We had to, you know, apply for kind of, you know, subsidies for the company. We had to, it was survival. It was real survival from a or a perspective, as well as from a personal perspective. I mean, I had a two-year-old running around pregnant with another one, no nanny because, you know, during COVID, nobody wanted to help or come. So we had to work in shifts, you know, my husband and I, and then eventually got my brother to help and his brothers to help. And we would have shifts like, you know, nine to 12 and then 12 to three and three to six and six to nine and kind of just like communal living, getting, you know, all surviving in our own, in our own fields. You have family that lives nearby. Sounds like your brother is nearby. Well, he was in Philly and he came, he came to help. And then my sister came a little, we had basically try whoever we could, you know, but then again, there was still COVID. So you had to like, make sure they were fine and tested. And so you're feeling okay. Right. What's that? <laughs> Something in your nose, what's going on? <laughs> Even to this day, if someone coughs, I look at them like they have the play oh and I don't mean to, it's just like no, this no, no. automatic reaction now where it's like, wait a minute, are you sick? It's not even COVID anymore. It's just, are you sick? Get away yeah, from me. Yeah, 100%. The, you heard that joke, right? Like I used to, I used to cover a fart with a cough and now I cover a cough with a fart. <laughs> I have not heard that one, but. <laughs> it's just so funny. Like the cough is like the worst thing now. Yes, it is. Like, don't ever cough. I mean, God forbid you cough. choke on something you're drinking, you know, people okay. turn around and. Yeah, 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 no, but I've done it too. Like in the, in the plane, I heard somebody exactly like cough on their, on their drink. And I was like, who is this person? Right now, how so dare you put your mask on? You disgusting exactly. person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh wow. It was a crazy time. So what are some lessons you've learned about hiring a team? I think it's is tough in the beginning right because you want you want like the best of the best but you don't necessarily have the budget to hire everybody that you want so it's really thinking about what can you do and what where are your gaps and where do you hire somebody that's one because uh, you can't hire everybody you want and then two is kind of how to motivate them right because you can't necessarily pay the same as they would get paid somewhere else so that's part of it right versus in you know management consulting, people make a lot already. They have a lot of, you know, other benefits. There's healthcare, there's, you know, 401ks, there's good salaries. You, you don't have all of that. So it's really kind of also getting the team to really believe in your mission, I would say, uh, to get, you know, to get them excited to, 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 to fight this world with you, because it's not easy to have a startup and, and kind of, I feel like you're sometimes, you know, in warfare with the world around you left and right, like, so figuring out how you can get people that um, have the same mindset and are really willing to go the extra mile without all the benefits. So how big is your team now? You have like 25, 25, 30 people. Uh, and of course, more remote now and more freelance. So we've also been open to that because, you know, post COVID, we noticed that that worked as well. And what I noticed is honestly, and that kind of changed in terms of management style, 
I feel like it's more really adapting kind of the same way that I guess my parents adapted their parenting styles to us. It's also adapting your management styles to your employees. People, that's what I realized with time, respond to such different ways of managing. Some people really need kind of the guidance and want to talk a lot and other, other people see that as micromanaging. So it's very much now if you know, I've gone into the stage where when somebody new comes, I'm like, how do you, how do you like to work? Like very concrete, like, how do you like to work? How do you, do you like being communicated with on the phone? Some people find it really intrusive to get a text message. So being super concrete on what works for them, like from a channel perspective, phone, email, Slack, from a kind of like check-in perspective, do you want it often or not? From uh, what makes them tick? Do they like, you know, Again, is it really important for them to get compliments or do they really want to focus on the areas of improvement? So asking a ton of questions to understand what works for them. I noticed because everybody's really different. And in general, the human part of, I think people just also need to hear how important it, the work is that they're doing. You know, so instead of like, if you really, let's say you really need something tomorrow, the way to not do it is, hey, Joe, I need this by tomorrow, get it. It won't happen. But if I say, hey, Joe, this is, you know, this just came up. I'm so sorry, but we need this because it's for X, Y, and Z and timing is sucky, but you can get it, take a day off next week. Can you please focus on this? I'd really appreciate it. Then you'll probably get it. So it's a different way of, you know, getting things done. What advice do you have for founders that, you know, kind of deal with conflict a bit and they're wondering whether or not they should let someone go and how to go about doing it? You know, if you're thinking that, I would say the first thing is to really figure out what it is that this person doesn't have or what, what they're looking for that's a mismatch. And having a super frank conversation, I always believe in that, especially if somebody's, you know, depending on how long they've been there and being like, look, this is what I've been expecting because sometimes the communication is just not clear, right? So I've been expecting A, B, C, and D. Unfortunately, I've noticed, you know, this and this and this is not where it needs to be. How do you want to go about this? I can, you know, we can work on it for another month, but I need you to be here. And if not, we're going to part ways. I think it's, I am very direct. I don't like beating around the bush, but I also don't like firing people on the spot. You know, like it's good to have that, that kind of area for them, the opportunity for them to kind of, and maybe they'll then say, you know what, I actually hate this job. So thanks for saying that I want to leave too. Or maybe they'll be like, I really want to step up, but having that kind of last chance and sometimes it can work out and sometimes it doesn't, I think is important. And it's also good to just be honest with yourself on what you're looking for, you know? Do you think that founders and CEOs should allow that same process of kind of like a warning, right? Process for leadership, new leadership team members as well? Or does that just not count if you're a leadership team member? You just don't have that extra little chance. No, no, I think it should be for everybody. And I think feedback should also go both ways. You know, like, I also think the team has to tell us what to do and what we should be better on, et cetera, because I think that's, I really see, again, startup is a bit different because I feel like it's not as hierarchical. We really see each other as like a team trying to just achieve something, but the feedback has to go both ways and everybody needs to, you know, there are definitely things we, we could do better in and have become better at. And that's the only way to kind of grow as well. I, I actually like trying to improve myself because that's one of the things that you don't have as a founder, right? You have nobody telling you. It's tough to get feedback. And I'm curious, what's the toughest feedback that you've received? And what changes did you make to make things? Probably better? that I, so sometimes I'm too obsessed with something. So the team didn't like that. I would sometimes send them a message at like an 8 PM or 9 PM or something like that. So that's the main thing that I've had to control myself. So like for an example, right. I'll have pissed off customer who DMs me. Uh, we'll you know, figure out, or right, we'll figure out I'm a founder. We'll DM me and say like my piece broke and I haven't heard back. So, and this is at like 9 PM. The only thing I want to do is tell the team guys, we need to get back to this person. But now I've learned with time, is that I won't contact the team. I'll send an email and they'll get on it the next day because otherwise they just, you know, it's overwhelming. So things like that. So kind of controlling, controlling my passion in a way. And, and it sounds like the channel as well. So it sounds like, okay, Slack or text messages are kind of urgent items to be dealt with as soon as you receive the message. Email is something that there can be a delay if it's out of yep. hours. Yep. yep, exactly. But as a founder, right, you're, 
your company is often your baby. Yeah. Um, you're on it all the time. There is no off time. So, and especially no when a customer is not happy. Exactly. Yeah. For me, it's like all, you know, but then again, for them, it's sometimes it's more, you know, they, they, they can get really stressed. And that's the other thing I don't, that's another thing that I had to learn with time is that I just see myself as part of the team, not somebody scary or intimidating. But of course, if you're just starting, you'd be like, oh, this the founder CEO just called me. Oh, there must be something bad. So that's another thing where like now I give the team a heads up before I call them. So things like that, where you learn with time that um, you have to change a little bit. You can't just go off a whim and you have to be more strategic about when you're reaching out to your team and, and just, again, listening to them on what they're looking yeah. for. It is really, I think, a tough lesson to learn as a founder and CEO, your kind of power and influence over your team. I think it's highly underestimated as the founder because you're, you just think, I'm just one of you guys. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure this out too. Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> right. That's and they're exactly coming at it. it like, you're my boss. Oh my gosh, I can't mess up. I've got to impress you. Oh gosh, what does she want now? I've got to act ace. You know, they're always trying to be on their best game, which is good, but also bad because then they're also afraid to kind of speak up. They're afraid. And I honestly believe that it doesn't matter how nice you are as a leader or, you know, they're always going to be intimidated by you. Like, I just don't think it exists. Well, I do think COVID made it worse, right? Because that's what actually was some conversations, some people that we hired during COVID it was all remote, right? So they didn't see my social fluffy, happy side when we would just have drinks or whatever. And then when you take them out on social events, they're like, oh, wow, you're so chill and nice. I didn't realize. So I think, (laughs) you know, I'm like, well, of course, but if you only interacted with somebody from a professional standpoint, it's not the same. So I think that's one of the things and just being in person, sitting next to each other, realizing that, you know, you're all human and just trying to do something versus this like, you know, Yeah. I think one of the things I liked about COVID experience for everybody, especially from a workplace perspective, is that everybody was forced to work from home with their kids barging in during a Zoom meeting or while you're on Bloomberg or whatever, you know, I mean, it's hilarious. And it made that so much more normal. And it normalized, I think, that line that's drawn between family and work right? That it is in the same place. It's, there's nothing you can do about it. There's like kids screaming in the background and like, yeah, I think that that's been one of the things that I've seen as cool ish. That makes it very real. I guess you see that everybody's dealing with a lot and it's not this like scary corporate facade with like this perfect, perfect manager that has everything together. Yeah forgive what video it was. It was this one where the, the kid like dodged into the room and the guy oh my was God, on I the TV love that one. and the yeah. nanny is like trying to grab the kid from the, <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> so good. That was live, right? Otherwise it would have probably cut it out. Yeah. I love that. And he stayed yeah. very stoic. He was just like continuing his conversation. Like nothing just kind of weird. Like I wish he yeah. would have acknowledged the kid, scooped him up, put him on his lap and continued the conversation like that. I think would have been a little bit more real instead of the poor nanny, like scattering in the background, like poor this woman. is probably what made it funny though, that he was trying to ignore it, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. He was trying to be like, this is not happening. This is not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we wrap up here, what kind of final advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Is there anything that kind of shocked you about your journey in building your company that looking back, you wish you knew? A lot of things. I'm trying to think of the most important ones. Well, I would say one is make sure that you're ready to essentially, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but almost give up everything else for a while, right? Because once you're in it, it just is all consuming. I think that's just important to know, right? So you have to really, before you start, because it's one of those things you kind of start and then you're like, oh my God, you're in it and you can't get out, right? So make sure that, you know, if you wanted to travel somewhere, do that before. If you want to spend time with your friends or whatever, I would say just realize that it is going to be really consuming for the amount of time that you're doing it. And to build some type of team or network or, you know, group that you can rely on that can help you because it is intense and you need to have people to talk to, which can't necessarily be your team, right? Because you have to talk about the other things that you can't necessarily share with them. So whether it's co-founder, whether it's investors, whether it's fellow founders, but have your kind of group of people 
that you can, you know, bounce ideas off with, talk about the bad things, the good things, the secret things, whatever, but you need, you need somebody because otherwise it's really lonely. Yeah. It can be very, very, very lonely. And so you've been able to surround yourself around enough people to help it feel less yes. lonely. Yes. Although again, post COVID, I think it's more now of talking to, you know, having coffees again with founders. It's great. I think yeah. that part of, you know, sitting, sitting with other founders, we have this like group startup sufferers anonymous where we meet and drink and talk about our stories, right? Like you, you need that too, because there's, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of things that you don't want to, can't tell your team, right. Or don't want to bother them with or scare them with. So having your group to talk to is key. And what are those things you think that would scare a team or just scare in general? Because I think people that haven't started a company yet, and I know for myself, before I started my first company, I didn't really know anything. I didn't know what I was getting into. And then I was in it and I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. But it's so hard to, I think, articulate. Yeah, but just like whether it's, you know, fundraising, revenue, and there's always something, right? Because you always want more, right? So we turn profitable, that's great, but then you want, you know, more profitability or you want, you know, maybe cost cutting, who knows what it is, but you can't, you can't discuss that with, I mean, not in the beginning with your, with your team like that. So it's, we're just talking about right, like, Hey guys, we're going to have to cut some costs. And they're exactly. like, Oh shit, is like, my neck on the line? Yeah. Yeah. There's just, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, restructuring in terms of like how you're setting up the team, the org chart, who's reports to who, uh, incentives, salaries, 401ks or not, you name it, uh, potential exit strategies. Like there's so many things that you still need to bounce off uh, other people that that just helps. And also just like the role of a founder and, and, and how to develop yourself as a founder and pitfalls and mistakes and et cetera. Do you have a coach that you work with? How do you- no, but I, I'm looking, if you know somebody, I probably should find one. Um, I've had, no, mostly honestly are our fellow groups of other founders, but I have heard a lot of people talk about it and then it's really good. So it's something eventually we should, we should look into. Absolutely. I, th I think it's also that part of the time, just finding the time to actually make it all happen, you know? Right. Yeah. There's always just a lot. I think it's just like an overwhelming feeling overall, like is what is so lonely in a way. Yeah. And just prioritization, right. Really focusing on, I feel like that's also like almost like a daily thing. It's just like, what am I going to prioritize today? and really focus on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for being on the show today. It was really fun hearing your story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.